0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And while you're there, Subscribe to our free newsletter. We'll send you our best three stories every week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our My Car Series, where our fellow Americans tell stories about a car that they've once owned. And today's feature is from Barry McGuire, the CEO of his third-generation family company, Maguire's, which is the largest car care products company in the country. And our own Alex Cortez was with Barry in his car collection when he told us about purchasing his favorite car, one that he was trying to buy just because he wanted a car from the same year that his family's company was founded, 1901.
1: So I found this 1901 car at an auction. They have these classic car auctions where they sell nothing but old cars. That's where I'll be next week. I'll be at the same where I bought this And there's seven other auctions going on at the same time. They're huge, probably $150 million worth of cars that we sold this week in Scottsdale.
0: 164 there now, for Sold them 163 and a half.
1: That's, it's a crazy, it's a crazy marketplace. So I saw this in the brochure, and I decided I'd like to get it. And I was at another auction, and friends that were at the auction where this was, I said, would you buy it for me, but here's my limit. I want to go over this amount. So by the time I get there, they just bought the car and they paid more than I wanted for it, fortunately, because I wouldn't have bought it. The number one car collector in the world is a guy named Ebert Lauman. Uh, he has the Laumann Museum. It's on the grounds of the Queen in The Hague in Holland. The collection itself and the cars and the building, are probably worth a billion dollars. This guy, he knows every, he, he is the expert on collector cars. He can buy anything he wants. And he had picked out this car as one he wanted to buy. And it turned out that when he went in to buy it, it had just got off the block, he just missed it. I got it, he would have outbid me, he would have got the car, but I got it. So he comes out, he says, who bought this car? He said, Barry, he looked at me, and he knows I'm in these kind of cars, I'm not in these cars. He says, Barry, you bought this car? Yeah. And he's looking and he says, oh, Oh, this is hilarious. He could buy this with pocket change. I mean, this is a nothing car. He's got cars that are worth 20, whatever, million dollars, he He said, I have this car, but it's not correct. This one's correct. We've since taken this car, completely apart. And they talk about numbers matching. This is the real deal. This is all 1901 stuff the numbers is in all the parts everything in this car is original which makes it a very special car he says i have one but it's not correct He's got to take pictures i'll make some of these parts i said of course you can so he says so you know about this car i said oh, it's a durier i'm thinking made in france or something i don't know i just want to have a 1901 car he says you know what it has three cylinders now this guy is taller than me and he's, he's the most passionate car driver, so he's eloquent. He's, he's, he's just, I mean, the guy his presentation is just, I love the way he talks. I, I, I did a TV show with him. every car in the collection. This car, it just, it just makes my heart patterns. This, this, this. He's, he's, every car in the collection, he talks to me, he's so personally involved with it. So he's really, so if you get the idea. He's, you know why this car has three cylinders? I mean, you don't have three cylinders. You have two, four, six, eight. Because of vibration and stuff and balance, you don't have a three-cylinder car. you know why this car has three cylinders? And here he said, oh, you know why this car has three cylinders. I said, no. He looked at and said, what? You don't know why it has three cylinders? I said, no. He said, well, you know they're Christians. And he knows I'm a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's a collector with all this knowledge. He said, well, you know they're Christians. I said, who? <laughs> he said, the Derriere brothers. Oh God, <laughs> turns out the Derriere brothers created the first American car, gas powered car in the 1800s, 1886. They created the first production car. They're the first kind to of ever make a second car like the first car. So they have the record of the first production car. They have the record winning the first automobile race. I mean, there's all kinds of history. I didn't know anyway, he said. He says, you know they're Christians. I said, who? He says, the Durier brothers. The Durier brothers? He says, yeah. He says, in fact, they call themselves Trinitarians. Are are you? Yeah. He says, and look at this. He says, you know why There's a fish on the side, right? Well, I had looked at that, and I thought, that is the dumbest thing in the world. (laughs) Why would anybody carve a fish into a car? I mean that just doesn't make any sense. I just, I'll buy it anyway. I don't want to buy it than I just, do, you know. He's, you know, why the fish on the side of the car? Well, it was art. Everything was art. So they put this here's the whole tail of the fish, right, elegantly done. He's, you know, why they put the fish in the side of the car? And I said, I he's <laughs> He He's the sign of the fish. The early Christians. Are you kidding me? He says. And he comes over to me and he says. Do you not know this is the only car ever made to honor God? And I got it. I own it. I mean, can you believe it? So I always look at ways to talk about God in, in my car guy situation. So every chance I get. They always want to know what kind of cars have it. I got one car that's really interesting, and I tell them this story. What have I just done? I just told there is a God who works miracles. That's 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 central to my life, and I didn't offend anybody. You know, you find ways to share your faith so you don't offend anybody. I think there's about twenty of them in existence, and I think there's only two or three that are running but none of them, but none of them
0: like that. And great job to Monty, who helped us with the piece. And Monty is a student at Hillsdale College. And what a great find. And thanks also to Barry McGuire and what passion he has for this car, this car that he just had to own because he needed a car from 1901 because that's when his family's company was founded. And it turns out, he found the only car ever made to honor and celebrate God. What a good story. Barry Maguire's story, his car story, here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories, and now we bring you the story of Game to Grow, a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. Here to explain what they do are Adam Johns and Adam Davis.
2: Um, as we talk to, to people kind of around the country, and especially people who are not not in the gaming or um, or kind of geek um, atmosphere or culture. Oftentimes, they assume Dungeons and Dragons is a video game. So here's here's how I usually describe it. Um, there's one person who acts as the sort of head storyteller and referee of the game, and they know most of the rules and they can explain most of the rules to the game. And that person's usually referred to as the dungeon master or the game master. And they sit at the head of the table, and they describe stuff that's happening in the world. And then everybody else who's sitting at the table um, is uh, just playing a character in that world, a single character. And they have a piece of paper that tells them things like how strong their character is, or what kind of equipment they have, or what kinds of abilities they have. And this all takes place in a fantasy world, much like Lord of the Rings, where there are swords, and bow and arrow, and uh, full suits of armor, of course, magical spells. And the dungeon master might describe something like, all of you have uh, decided to venture into this dark cave where you can see that there are, there's mildew growing on the walls, there's mold, um, and there is a um, dripping coming from the stalactites in the ceiling. You're here because you've heard of a tremendous treasure um, that apparently was lost in these caves a long time ago, and you've decided you're going to go after that treasure. Maybe even you have a map to help guide you through. And as you travel further down into the cave, it's very dark, um, but you can see that the walls have been carved out like somebody has carved them with man-made tools. And you travel deeper and deeper into this cave system until finally you open up into a, a large room And in this large room, you can see um, across the way is a door on the other side of a very large gap. um, And the gap seems to stretch very far down into the ground. But the thing that really catches your eye is that hanging above the gap, uh, clinging for dear life, appears to be a small gnome man. And he's uh, hanging from a rope. And he sees you as you walk in and he uh, shouts to you, Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for being here! I'm so happy somebody finally showed up! Please help me! And at this point in time, uh, the dungeon master then says, what do you do? And all of the players at the table get to decide what their character does to sort of overcome this This challenge or this situation. So they might do all sorts of things. A uh, warrior character might um, leap across the pit and try to grab the gnome uh, to save him from, from falling down into the pit. A, um, a ranger or an archer character um, might shoot a bow with a, a rope tied to it and tightrope walk across the, the pit and, and um, save the gnome that way. Or a wizard character who can cast magic spells might uh, use a magic spell that can pull the rope and get it swinging so the gnome might be able to jump off. And no matter what they do, they're going to do it together because all the players at the table are all working on a team together. They're not competing with each other. Instead, they are working cooperatively towards a common goal. And in this case, the common goal of the game is not the most points. It's not even to achieve a particular goal. Even in this case um, of the example I gave, you're not trying to get treasure. You're trying to tell a story. ¶¶ And that's one of the really brilliant things about um, games like Dungeons & Dragons is that the point of the game is to tell a story. And because that's really the goal of the game, because that's really the place that you're trying to get to, everybody at the table might have a different idea for what that story looks like, but they know they're all working towards that goal. Um, and that's what really turns it into a a brilliant and amazing experience as the dungeon master continues to describe things in the world continues to describe whether or not the players Uh, attempts to to do those things are successful, Um, and the players get to roll dice to help add randomness and and help determine the the outcomes of their action, and get to really have the most open-ended gaming experience you can possibly have, where they can decide and and try anything that comes to their minds in a very loose um, uh, rule system that allows you to be very flexible with the outcomes of it.
3: A lot of game masters, to to my chagrin, um, I don't like the fact that they often see themselves as adversaries of the players. There's oftentimes an antagonistic relationship where the game master uh, sees themselves as needing to challenge, and there's like a, ha-ha, your characters are going to die today because my monsters are going to be stronger than them. And we don't do anything like that. Um, our goal as game masters is very much to challenge the players, but also to keep them engaged and keep them excited so we do that by challenging them the right amount um, building on their ideas while they build on our space um, on, on our ideas because we are uh, we're co- co-creating and collaborating in this in this game where that's oftentimes uh, for many of our players the first time an adult has said what do you care about what do you want to do so then the players now see an adult who is playing with them, really playing with them in a way that is very healing to a lot of, a lot of participants, especially ours, who are identified at school as, as oftentimes being an outcast. People tell them what to do all the time, very rarely say, what do you care about? What is something that you want out of life? And so this is an opportunity where they can push boundaries and see what happens when they take up space and then have an adult be excited about the choices that they're making. We started doing what we're doing right now, using Dungeons & Dragons in therapeutic social skills groups, largely by accident. Adam and I both started playing Dungeons & Dragons when we were pretty young. Uh, got a lot out of it. We played games with our friends. We got to use all the, uh, all the mechanics of the games and the storytelling of the game to really get a lot of social outlet when we were kids. I, Adam Davis, was... Um, Studying drama therapy because I had wanted to use the, the drama games and experiences that I had had as a performer and then as a drama teacher to help kids, um, help kids become more into themselves and learn about themselves and, and how they could interact with the world better. And so Adam and I met in grad school and I started picking up um, an after school program that was a Dungeons and Dragons program for quirky kids who needed a little, a little guidance and social support. And I took the game over and realized that Dungeons & Dragons is actually a a perfect uh, modality for sit-down drama therapy, so we uh, started using the game a little more intentionally and then um, just barely scratching the surface, and then when my facilitator at the time left to go pursue other interests. There was an opening, and I knew Adam from grad school, so we had kind of, like, done that thing where we uh, we, we brought uh, some things from our personal lives as sort of a get-to-know-you activity in the very beginning of the quarter, and both Adam and I brought dice. We knew from across the room that we were both named Adam. We both liked dice and games, and so we knew we were kindred spirits.
2: Uh, so um, we, we had that great moment, that sort of nerd nod... Uh, from from across the room, um, and then uh, after the class, uh, Adam Davis came up to me and he said, "Hey, do you want to get paid to come and play improv games and Dungeons and Dragons?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds <laughs> that sounds like the best." Um, and at the time, the group was really just a, a sort of uh, drop-in social group. Um, and then when we came in, we started saying, "There's a lot we can do with this," and we were both in a state of. Uh, sort of um, master's program um, desire to, to want to use all the amazing theories and all the amazing stuff that we were learning, and we um, really had this tremendous opportunity to start diving in saying, oh my gosh, we're, this, this is exactly what we can be using, all of these amazing theories, all these amazing things that we're learning, and we can apply them right here, but through the game of Dungeons & Dragons that we grew up playing.
0: And when we return, we're going to hear more from Adam Johns and Adam Davis, Game to Grow. And it's a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. And my goodness, I'd never thought of anything like this before. But by the way, people who naysay and talk down so many of the games that young boys and girls play, I don't think see the virtues of a lot of these games and a lot of the social skills that can be learned playing them and particularly Dungeons and Dragons because of its creative space and how in the end the world was created and in the end dictated by the actors and players themselves. So when we come back, more of this story, Adam John's story and Adam Davis's story, two pals who figured out a way to help people at risk, people in need, game to grow Their story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and the story of Game to Grow. And by the way, they hail from Kirkland, Washington. And as so many of our stories do, they hail from all over this great country. And some are quirky stories. Some are big, bold stories about founders and Henry Ford. But these are some of our favorites. They're not big, bold stories. They're better than that. They're small, risk-taking, quirky stories. They're happening all around us every day. If you have a story like it, something somebody's doing to impact their neighborhood, their neighbor even, just that story, one person helping one person, we're as interested in that here in Our American Stories as Henry Ford's story or George Washington's. We treat them all the same. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now back to the story of Adam Davis and Adam Johns and how one of their childhood treasures turned into a grad school exercise and ultimately
3: a full-time occupation in therapy. We got our first group going. The parents saw the outcomes. The parents started talking to other parents, inviting us to speak at other engagements. And then all of a sudden, the the ball started to roll. And then before we knew it, we have continued to grow. And we are now full-time therapeutic game masters and executive directors of game to grow We have a a sort of a, a theory at Game to Grow where players play the characters that they need to play. So we have a lot of players who, like I said, are socially isolated, who don't have a lot of social aptitude and they don't really have a lot of experience being charismatic or confident, but they pick characters who are aspirational. A lot of players come in and they they pick characters who are military leaders, who have on their character sheet that they are very charismatic, that people believe in them. And so we know right away that that's something that, the, that these young people want to, want to play with and want to explore. Um, we have players that come in choosing to play characters that are very similar to themselves. Lone wolves who are very isolated in the game. And then we can help that character grow and thus the player grow. And that lone wolf character who wants to go off and solve every problem by themselves, now we put them in a situation in the game where their character needs to rely on somebody else because Dungeons & Dragons is a fellowship game. It's a game where every character has a unique and special ability that, that makes them special. And that's a great life lesson, is that you can't do everything by yourself. And people are going to rely on you, and you are going to rely on people. And here's what that looks like to ask for help. And here's how good it feels to be able to be the person who can step up and help out the team.
2: In one particular instance uh, where a player really made a choice that I was not expecting, um, the characters had all made their way through this dungeon, and they came up into a room where there was, um, on in one corner of the room, a massive troll of legend uh, who had been imprisoned there. And in the other corner of the room was a series of three unlabeled switches. And uh, across the other side of the room was a metal door that was closed. And it quickly was explained to the players that um, one of the three unlabeled switches would open the door on the other side of the room, allowing them to progress further into their dungeon. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other two switches, when pulled together, would release the, the massive troll of legend upon the players, but also upon the world itself. And usually how this works is that it's sort of a, um, an interesting uh, challenge where the players can talk to the troll, they can figure out uh, is the troll lying to us about which switch is which, and, and it's sort of a mix of a puzzle and a social challenge. In this case, we had one player who uh, had just joined the group and the player had described their character as being impulsive and having um, a lot of uh, hyperactivity. And it was an appropriate character for that player to play because that that player also struggled with those exact same challenges. And that player said, "Um, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. And I've run that scenario several times. That was the first time anybody had ever just decided to pull all three switches. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had to decide, okay, well, what, what's going to happen here? And what are the consequences of of effectively just running ahead? And all the other players at the table had gotten out like graph paper and they were getting ready to like solve the puzzle. And they just stood and stared slack-jawed at their teammate who, who might have just done them all in. And what I said was the troll runs across the room and he picks up uh, the impulsive player's character, getting ready to eat them whole. And all the other characters, I said, you, you're, you're the players at the table, I said, you, you can leave now. The door is open. Uh, but if you leave, you'll be leaving your teammate to be eaten by this, this massive troll of legend. And you'll also be leaving the troll to, to wreak havoc upon the world. You need to decide what your characters would do here. They are heroes in this world. What would they do? And they turned and they debated it with each other and they eventually decided that they would help their teammate. And so they enticed the troll back into the, the cage um, and re-imprisoned the troll. And at the end of that session, we always do a checkout at the end of every session. At the end of that session, there um, the players all checked out with each other and the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys helped me out there because my character is really impulsive and it's clear that they're going to have to learn how to be less impulsive. And I'm hoping that your characters will help teach them that. And one of the other players at the table also said in the checkout, I'm super glad that you did that because we're all here to basically learn how to navigate this space, how to learn these skills and be better at this. And your character doing that helped make me feel like like I really belong here. I'm, I've struggled with some of the same challenges, and it helped me feel like I belong. And it was an amazing moment for them to realize that they're all in a similar place, and they've all struggled to make friends, to connect with people. Um, and this is a place where that doesn't matter, where they can all get along, and where they can m- maybe have missteps but they can feel a sense of acceptance here.
3: Part of our mission is to get more games into more communities around the country and around the world. We have traveled and we've done presentations and trainings for therapists who want to get involved. So. What we've seen is that a lot of therapists don't have a lot of experience with role-playing games. And then the big barrier to entry, they, they hear the stories, they get excited, they want to participate in this emerging uh, intervention strategy, but they've, they're underexperienced in a uh, game like Dungeons & Dragons. So one of our missions is to create a product that they can then take, and it'll help them get started much faster. This project is called Critical Core, It is a beginner box for therapeutic game masters to start helping their participants almost right out of the box. So it's got a really simplified rule set. It's got a facilitator's guide for how to facilitate the game to be a positive pro-social environment with all the improv and all the stuff that we have added on as uh, incorporating the play therapy and drama therapy that we have into our game. But then also it's got a very specific module design where the storylines are directly related to real world areas of social growth. So we might have the room that fills up with lava and that's a way to build frustration tolerance. Or the players have to go and get past a guard and that guard might have a slightly downturned mouth that looks like a frown. And then we can work on theory of mind skills and perspective taking where now we can talk about Uh, nonverbal social cues and the fact that that guard being sad or upset has nothing to do with you you have no idea why he's making that facial expression but in order to get past the guard into the next room in the dungeon or in the castle we have to be able to relate to him understand him and communicate with him so those three components going into Critical Core uh, I think will really be how we can get this project out there we like Microsoft's vision of a computer on every desk we want a game on every desk a game in every school a game in every hospital, a game in every clinic and therapist's office. Uh, That is our mission.
2: So we don't want people to just game more. We want people to game better. Don't just game. Game to grow.
0: And what an interesting story. At first, when I was reading about it, I thought, why should I care? But as so often happens here on this show, you start to hear the story and you go, my goodness, what an interesting way to do therapy therapeutic game masters and it just well it makes sense and we've been telling adam johns and adam davis's story great job on this robbie robbie just sort of bumped into it these guys are in kirkland washington and we love to tell stories from all over this great country big ones small ones again adam johns and adam davis game to grow and i love what they said don't just game more game better this is our american stories American Stories. And now it's time for another story of a song, one of our favorite segments here on Our American Stories. And this one features two musicians who were reputed to be seeking perfection. But as guitarist Dean Parks said, quote, perfection is not what they were after. They're after something that you wanted to listen to over and over again. Let's take a listen to what Craig Hengler has for us today.
4: They were hipsters before the term was coined, which would make them the real deal. It's widely considered that over-engineering a track ultimately ends in failure. Not here. In an age before Pro Tools, Steely Dan engineered some of the best analog production ever. So exacting, so tight, their style was a sophisticated and seamless fusion of jazz and pop music. Their style became known as Yacht Rock, and Steely Dan docked a fleet of remarkable hits. The band consisted of just two core members. Donald Fagan grew up in Passaic, New Jersey, just a 20-minute drive to New York City through the Lincoln Tunnel, and Walter Becker, who grew up in Queens. Here's Walter Becker. you
5: everlasting summer, you can see it fading flat. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna
6: last. The original Steely Dan Band was formed in 1971. There were five of us, and Donald and I wrote the songs.
5: Are you reeling in the east? Stowing away the time? Are you gathering at the tease? Have you had enough of mine?
6: We toured for a while to support the first couple of albums, but we didn't really like it, so we stopped in 1974 and didn't tour again for 19 years. By the time uh, we released Asia, the other members of the band uh, were gone except for Denny Dias, and uh, we'd replaced them with session musicians and some of our favorite soloists.
4: Here's Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and fellow session contributors for the Asia album providing a fascinating glimpse into one of those recordings, Peg, on track four. Drummer Rick Morata recounts what many consider one of the greatest drum groups ever recorded. I seen your picture.
7: I feel nothing but pride from that track. It was one of the best tracks I ever played on. As far as drums were going at that time, it was like if you had a club in your right hand and a club in your left hand and clubs for feet, you could uh, play. I had just opened my hi-hat a hair. Every couple of beats with what I was playing with my right hand on the hi-hat and it created this little sound. Now I've done that but never ever heard it on the record that I had done. Because engineers and sounds at the time, you know it was it was one of those things where it's a nuance and those things didn't exist.
5: You see it
4: Here's Fagin and Becker in the studio playing with the soundboard while admiring the sneaky bass stylings of Chuck Rainey.
8: As I remember this was kind of a written bass part, but he fixed it up, in his own parts of it were written. Right. This part was written, mm. this verse
9: part. Just a great musician, slapping and also
8: fretting with his thumb.
9: Right. Chuck had a really unique, here's the chorus, which was it. Uh, you'd
8: have to ask Chuck about the thumb business, you know.
6: They didn't want me to slap, I think mainly because at that time, slapping was just becoming popular and it was on a lot of records. However, my be being a player, I think there are some songs that slapping sounds good. And no matter who you are, you want to keep in the fold of what's happening. Uh, Peg, uh, uh, that bridge there just seemed to be a slapping thing for me. They said, well, no, play with your fingers, uh, you know, something like that. And then... You play these songs so many times that after a while, I remember just turning just a little bit, either this way or this way, and putting up a uh, partition. And uh, they were about that high. And so, of course, sitting in a much lower chair. And uh, I remember, you know, slapping. They never knew it went down. They never knew it, except afterwards, you can tell there was a difference in that bridge.
9: I'll put in the keyboards again here, so you got, like, here's your little...
6: Rhythm section.
9: ...little uh, trio here.
8: I'll
9: tell you one thing that's interesting that that I'm listening to now is that you don't really hear... uh, In a a lot of grooves that you hear, there's a lot of doubling between the uh, bass and the kick drum, and you can hear here that the, the kick drum is all sort of syncopated. It's not really... You know what I mean?
7: It's not doubling so much the strong beats that the bass is playing. You you gotta love them, but it's not like, you go in there and you're just really good friends and you'll play and you'll try to get into it and they'll say, yeah, that's really good. And then the next day somebody else is doing it, a whole other band. It wasn't like they played musical chairs with the guys in the band, they played musical bands. A whole band would go, and a whole incredible other band would come in.
8: We never came up with a band of our own that we felt was the right combination of guys, that it was stable, it was just me and Walter. You hear somebody in a record and you say, wow, listen to this guy's a great soloist, so let's have him come in you know, what would he be good on, you know, what would suit his style, you know. That's fun. This tune, I think, is infamous among studio players in that we hired a couple of guitar players, you know, to play the solo, and and it wasn't quite what we were looking for um, until
6: mm-hmm. we got
8: through three or four, five players. Six, six, six players, or seven, six or you know. Six or seven, eight players. Something else soloed, or oh, there it is. Let's check this out. Put it, go back, and let's hear it in the track.
9: probably the, the, the last guy to try it before Jay did it.
8: Here's another one. What is that, some kind of little envelope filter thing he's got going there on his guitar? Didn't you hear that someone do this to you?
9: And then finally um, Jay Graydon came in and did it with no um, difficulty whatsoever.
8: Hawaiian yeah, kind there. of, kind of a Polynesian. I sort of prefigured my own later resonance in Hawaii.
4: Here's the great Michael
5: McDonald. I would worked
10: with him enough to kind of know what I was in for, you know, <laughs> certain words that they just wanted to hear a certain way that. You know, normally under normal normal circumstances, people wouldn't. You know, they kind of. This is the words you hear the parts. Uh, you sing it, and you know uh, that's the phrasing. But for those guys, uh, phrasing could have such nuance. You know that. Uh, you know, singing a line like half as much as. You'd think, oh, you know, how many different ways can you say it in that phrasing rhythmically? And you know. But it would be—it would come down to such fine points like uh, pronunciation and uh, exact rhythmic, you know, uh, vibrato, no vibrato, you know, uh, things like that. And so it was always real challenging.
8: He did a couple parts on on top of himself. Let's check his out his high part just to embarrass him. Cool. Back to you
5: back to you.
8: <laughs> Sorry, Mike. There it is.
5: It's all ears
8: too.
5: All in 3 movie. Peg, back,
10: back to you. Peg doesn't sound like much of a part, but the harmonies were so close that um, that was a, a real learning experience for me, to sing a chord, you know, part by part with myself. Uh, You know, when you're going back into to sing that next harmony, it's so close to the note you're singing it. It was just uh, real hard for me to discern that interval and and keep it in pitch, you know. We had
9: a pretty specific idea about this, uh, how these background parts would work and the sort of swing band rhythmic approach and how we wanted it phrased and so on.
4: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a
0: story, and so many different ways songs come to be. Some it's spontaneous, some, my goodness, over and over again, laborious, fastidious, and that's Steely Dan, the ultimate studio band. The story of a song, Peg, and how it came to be here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, the tale of a disaster in American history one of epic proportions, and Jesse Edwards brings us the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Blackstrap
10: molasses and the wheat germ bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed with blackstrap molasses and the wheat germ bread
11: Lassus isn't just used for Grandma's cookies or for Grandpa's rum. It's also used for weapons, high explosives, and munitions when it's refined to industrial-grade alcohol. And the United States Industrial Company during World War I saw that this was a profitable market. Their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company, wanted to get in on the action. In the north end of Boston, Arthur Gell, treasurer of the purity distilling company realizes that he has to build a tank you see he's purchased a boatload of molasses that's heading north from the Caribbean and he's got no place to put it he commissions the Hammond Iron Works Company and he doesn't pull a building permit he only pulls a permit for the foundation therefore he's not scrutinized by any inspectors So the Hammond Ironworks puts together 18 huge steel plates with rivets and they build this magnificent tank. It's 58 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, a 240 foot circumference. And they're going to fill it with molasses. But there's only one problem. You see, the ship is inbound. And if they don't have that tank built, the ship will dump the molasses that they paid for into the Boston Harbor. Now, December of 1915 was a tough year weatherwise in Boston. With 20 inches of snow and some casualties on the construction site, the deadline was growing closer and closer. Finally, as the ship is pulling into the harbor, the tank is complete. Arthur cuts some corners. Instead of filling the tank to the top with water to test the structural integrity, he decides to fill it only six inches high. Arthur declares it, "'Sturdy, sound, and ready to use. Bring us the molasses!' So they filled the tank up, and everything seemed fine, until about a year later. Isaac Gonzalez, a technician, noticed that the molasses seemed to be congealing around the riveted joints and seeping from the seams, rolling down the side of the tank." He noticed children going to the base of the tank to put molasses on their fingers and putting it in their mouths. They were getting it all over their clothes. Well, he brought this to Arthur Gell's attention. Arthur said, Well, never mind. We'll just repaint the tank gray. And that's exactly what they did. They painted the tank gray to cover up the molasses stains. Another technician soon noticed that when he leaned against the tank he noticed this low rumbling noise that sounded like the growl of an angry animal. Another leaning against the tank swears that he could hear a heartbeat and that the tank was flexing in and out. Something was wrong. This wasn't molasses fermenting. There was bubbling inside, but this was an ominous sign that something was wrong with the integrity of the tank. 1919. The Molero is offloading nearly 2 million gallons of molasses into the tank at 529 Commercial Street. On January 12th, the temperatures are freezing, near zero. The following day on the 13th, they swing 35 degrees into the low 40s. By January 15th, it's a beautiful day in Boston. The sun is out, and it's nearing lunchtime. All around 529 Commercial Street is bustling. It's Boston's North End. Mrs. Clority is out hanging her wash on the line. Her cat, Peter, sits on the doorstep. Mrs. O'Brien is planting flowers. Little Maria de Stacio is near the train tracks, collecting free firewood. And then, suddenly, a low rumble shook the ground. It got louder and louder. In the freight yard, people looked at each other, mouths agape. And suddenly, the ripping, tearing, and machine gun sound of steel bolts being stripped. Something is happening to the tank. There's a booming roar. And a 40-foot wave of molasses is unleashed. Men, women, and children in the streets have no chance to react. It crushes freight cars like toys, topples buildings. Anyone caught in the path of this wave is devoured. Then the noise and the rumbling stop. There was a thick pool of molasses spread over where 529 Commercial Street used to be. By sundown, 15 bodies are recovered. Six more the following morning. 150 people would be injured. Later, there are lawsuits. 3,000 witnesses come forward. And the lawyers tried to deflect the blame from the United States Industrial Alcohol Company and Purity Distilling, It wasn't the infrastructure of the tank. It was anarchists. They planted a bomb. And that was enough to get them off the hook for the great molasses disaster. Legend has it that on hot summer days in Boston, you can still smell that bittersweet molasses scent that harkens back to the great molasses flood of 1919. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is our american stories black
10: strap molasses and the wheat germ bread makes you live so long you wish you were dead you add some yogurt and you will be well fed with black strap molasses and
2: the wheat germ bread my grandpa's older than the old gray mare he sits a rocking in his rocking chair, but now he's got a smile that he can't lose. And Grandma's sittin' it in baby's shoes. From
10: eatin' wax strap molasses and the Ouija bread, makes you live so long you wish you were dead.
2: You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed. With wax strap molasses and the Ouija bread. Uh, uh,
1: uh. I gave up cherry pie and t-bone steak. Chicken, fricassee, and ice cream cake I don't need vitamins or pills at all I even mix it with my haddock call I'm blackstrap molasses and the Ouija bread Makes you live so long you wish you were dead You add some yogurt and you'll be well fed With blackstrap molasses and the Ouija bread My knives were jumpy and I'd walk the floor I never got to sleep till after 4, but since
8: I'm eating right, I feel okay. I'm sleeping every
1: night in half.
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts, and from business to history. And this story... Well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps... This is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart-on-his-sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick, overarching, Reader's Digest like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question. What event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's the,
12: his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant. He was well-read. He was tenacious. He was a very skillful practicing lawyer and young still and then the soldiers were captured and they were everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to the, having them executed but they had to be represented in the trial and no one would represent them no one would defend them and Adam said if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial We better live up to what we say we believe i'll defend them and he did so certain that it was going to ruin any ambitions he had to play a part and he had a terrific wife he's the only founding father most people don't know this but i think it's so important the only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever.
0: Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770
4: trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, It begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of this struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries, John Adams, Kirk Ellis.
8: The reason that they taxed America was
9: because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies.
4: But as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson.
13: And this includes something called the writs of assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property, freely.
4: The British army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist.
13: The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence, from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it is, of course, a tax. And this leads to opposition.
4: When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envision wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body but they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins, not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty.
9: The Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies.
4: The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman.
3: Sam Adams was
8: a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the Revolution. His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside.
4: If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, And goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams.
13: They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence.
4: The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach.
9: You have to remember, at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers.
0: And what a story. And when we come back, this story setting up, well, like a showdown, like high noon And we're putting you where we always put you, right there on the streets, in the context, in the history itself. When we come back, more of John Adams' story, more of the story of the Boston Massacre trial and the circumstances that brought us there. John Adams' story here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler.
6: Oh, there's no turning back for me.
4: England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation.
1: I fear there's no turning
4: back now. In 1768, four more regiments sail from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupy this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. He creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder, who has it worse? Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman.
9: These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep the peace.
13: For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional
10: army at this time is a high state of discipline. Physical, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash.
4: Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobster back for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22nd, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys.
9: So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against
5: English merchants.
9: The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place.
4: That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as Loyalists or Tories.
9: Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get
4: him! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia, but soon, Rocks are hurled and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot. The size of large peas. What
12: about Liberty
4: Boys? Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green. But the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom.
10: There's nothing I can do.
13: Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an
9: incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town.
4: Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary.
10: My eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent, if wanted, in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring, and that the ardor of the people
13: is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for
9: Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty, and this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution.
4: In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid moonlit evening of March 5th, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, An angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roams through the snow covered cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once, crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged, and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to
9: demonstrate that... We hold the power, and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates, and a mob starts to grow.
4: British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the customs house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The
9: more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets.
4: The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
2: We will all regret this day.
4: And when we come
0: back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story, and we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him, and so many like him, formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though, when we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre Trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler.
2: We will all regret this day.
9: The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American
13: press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is crazy. This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape the public opinion.
4: Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history, showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison, into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office, when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after the massacre.
7: Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you?
4: With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the Loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single Loyalist would take the case.
5: No one else would play this case.
4: As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. John Adams was not eager to take the task. But
11: Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense.
4: That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography... And from the trial.
9: He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created. And a situation of escalating violence was building.
10: The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and
13: for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read John Adams' ace in the hole trial is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr (laughs) and what was it he said? he said he fired to defend himself to defend
4: himself The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay, but puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, if upon the whole ye are are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries.
10: Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury
4: The trial of the Captain years. Preston last six Captain days, and that of his troops last nine.
10: not guilty.
4: These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day.
1: Not guilty.
4: Adams' compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers, and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs.
10: This session adjourned.
4: It is not only the soldiers Adams defends but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. One of the 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 most most gallant,
6: gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life. And one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country.
4: But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough.
12: I like to give credit where credit's due, in many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them and they're, the posse is not only keeping up with them, it's starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it, they get there. And if there's a problem or there's a over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake. We've come through it, and so when people start saying, "Oh, it's the well, country's going to hell," well, sure, it always has been, and and, uh, and and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, "Well, the taxes are too high, and the cost of this, and these damn politicians," I say, "Would you rather live somewhere else?" Oh no, 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 well, of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people, and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers, but there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life.
4: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great
0: job as always, Greg. And it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough. And this story, well, it tells you everything about John Adams. That one moment in your life... When you're up against everybody else when you're alone and it's you and your principles and how you act upon them well it determines who you are and it determined who john adams was no doubt great to hear this story and remind us of the founders of this great country and it always reminds us of hillsdale college as well and they do all of our this day in histories and whenever we do a history segment we always like to plug their great work go to hillsdale.edu and listen to their constitution 101 class watch it have the whole family watch it too it's terrific and we can't hear the story enough about the founding of our country john adams story the boston massacre the boston massacre trial here on our american stories